Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morris and Forster, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. All right. Good morning. Good afternoon, everyone. I am Aaron Kramer, President and CEO of VSR, and I am really delighted to welcome you to what should be a really interesting dialogue with Kyung Ah Park from Temasek and this is our sixth episode of the conversation series that we at BSR are doing with Morrison Forster, MoFo to its friends, titled ESG Influencers Leading Transformative Change. As I say, we're really honored to have a wonderful guest with us this month, Kyung Ah Park, who is Managing Director for ESG Investment Management at Temasek. Temasek is a Singapore-headquartered global investment company with portfolio value of over 403 billion Singapore dollars. So quite a large and I would say very influential firm. Kyung Ah is also a non-executive director of Clifford Capital Holdings and chairs the board ESG committee and serves on the boards of the Climate Works Foundation and Resources for the Future. She is also an advisor to the NYU Stern Center for Sustainable Business. Kyung Ah holds these roles and builds on over two decades of experience in the investment banking world. She built and led the environmental Global Environmental Markets Initiative at Goldman Sachs, where she also served as a member of the firm's Sustainable Finance Steering Group and was the head of the Center for Environmental Markets. In today's discussion, we will focus on how investors can embed ESG, a term that is getting quite a lot of attention in mainstream investments and across markets to help address the global climate challenge and also drive inclusive growth. Very little that is more timely. Kyung Ah will also provide insights on how Tomasic is harnessing ESG across its investment teams, which I know firsthand it is doing with great effect, and across the institution to strengthen the resilience of its portfolio and drive long-term sustainable value creation. I will hand over to my friend and colleague, Suze McCormick, who is the global chair of the ESG Social Enterprise Impact Investing and Energy Practices at MoFo. The title gives away how busy and accomplished Suze is. Suze will be interviewing Kyung Ah for this episode. So over to the two of you, Suze and Kyung Ah, take it away. Thanks so much, Aaron. And as Aaron mentioned, this is the sixth of our sessions. We decided to start this last year really because BSR, who've had the pleasure of working with for more than 20 years, is the gold standard in working with companies and investors on ESG and sustainability in a way that really ensures companies and investors can go beyond greenwashing into really integrated into their operations. And so it is a pleasure to work with BSR. It's also very much a pleasure to work with Tomasic. And I have had the opportunity to sort of have a front row seat watching how Tomasic has gone really from never zero, but 40 or 50 miles per hour in terms of ESG and sustainability to really being a market leader around the world. So Kyung Ah, it's a pleasure to have you with us this morning or this afternoon or this evening. We have people joining from all kinds of time zones. And I'd love to start with you providing just a little background for us on how you got to Tomasic. Maybe we could start with how you got to ESG and a focus on ESG because you were very early in terms of seeing 
the intersection between not just philanthropy, but mainstream capital markets and ESG, and then also how you got to Tomasek. Thanks, Sue and Aaron, first for inviting me to this. And also, it's great to see two leaders who have been at the forefront of sustainable business for a very long time. You both were quite early as well, joining hands and to host a series of important dialogues. So thank you for that. So let me begin with my career at Goldman and then how I ended up doing environmental sustainability work and then how I ended up at Tomasek. So I started my career at Goldman in more of the traditional investment banking division, doing mergers and acquisitions and financing and advisory work, which Sue, you're obviously very familiar with. And I had the opportunity to work across different regions, had a great run. But when I had my first child and now I'm blessed with two children, it was one of those moments where you realize the opportunity cost of spending time away from home had significantly gone up. And even though I wanted to continue working, the question really was around what really makes it worthwhile and more purpose for me to spend that much time away from my children. And ideally, whether it's directly or indirectly, try to have a more positive impact on them as well. And fortunately, Goldman had the foresight of establishing an environmental markets effort relatively early. And so I had the opportunity to join that effort, the group, early on and really be able to help build it out and eventually lead it. And it was one of those unique opportunities to be able to work across the entirety of the divisions within Goldman and really experience firsthand what it is to really harness market solutions to address some of the most critical environmental issues, including, of course, climate change, and be able to look at innovative financing opportunities and how to scale them, work on risk issues, as well as policy engagement. And as part of that work, I got to know Tomasek, which is an important client of Goldman, and really got to know the organization and respect the organization. And also have the opportunity to hear from leadership, including the CEO, around the vision to really put sustain the core of its investment remit and really invest with future generations in mind, which very much resonated. It is also, per the intro from Aaron, somewhat more uniquely positioned in that on the one hand, it's a global investor. But on the other hand, it is headquartered out of Singapore and Asia at such a pivotal time when Asia plays an outsized role when it comes to the climate transition, but also balancing that with inclusive growth given many of the countries obviously are still emerging economies. And so being able to have a platform through which you can actually have influence and ability to really think about the sustainability growth agenda very much resonated. And then I happened to get a call to see if I was interested in joining the team. When I was sitting in New York uh, during the height of the pandemic with everything locked down, feeling like life is really short, you got to live it fully. And so the stars aligned. And so here I am. That's great. Just another question. When you switched from doing the M&A and the advisor to environmental, how did you get up to speed? I have a lot of people who ask me the question. I started around 2001, really through my husband. And all of a sudden you see it, it's kind of like taking the red pill and you're like, there's some things that I did, but I would love to hear how, when you sort of integrated, because there are a lot of people who come out of this from the purely environmental side. Those of us who come from the corporate side, there's a lot we have to learn on the environmental and social side. So I was very fortunate that I had a number of good advisors and mentors, some of whom were very passionate about conservation and this agenda for a very long period of time, and had also worked at that time at Goldman on conserving a very important piece of land down in Tierra Chile. 
really understanding the business thesis as well as the environmental conservation thesis around it. And some of them have gone to start their own foundation, lead nature, conservancy, and do many other things, right, that I've benefited from. And I think that network and advisor will come back to, I'm sure, as part of the conversation is really important how Tomasic thinks about partnerships and collaborations as well. But also, frankly, a lot of it's learning as you're doing. And actually, I should have said, even BSR was a partner of Goldman and certainly is a partner of Tomasek. And so we learn from many thought leaders as well as non-government organizations as well. And the Center of Environmental Market was very much of a partnering with not-for-profit organization to scale market-based solutions. But also, you learn by doing, right? So I had the opportunity to work across the different divisions, including with some of the bankers on clean tech, the clean tech Wampano day, as soon as you remember this, right? All the way through working with many clients who are really at the forefront of cutting edge innovations, including on financing. So I had the opportunity to work with NL on the very first sustainability linked KPI linked bond, as an example, which has now obviously become a much more scaled up set of instruments. But I'm still learning. I'm still learning today, whether it's technology innovation, whether it's policy, whether it's in the context of different financial instruments and investable opportunity sets. And so being a networked organization is really important in that regard. Yeah, and Tomasic has done an excellent job. I was going to reference partnering with NGOs like BSR is a key way. For me, I actually would read articles and figured out who the professors were who had the expertise, and then I would call them up, and then I would take them to lunch and A-rate. There are all kinds of tools that you use to learn the space, but it has been around since the 80s. There are a lot of people who look at this as something new. It is not new, but there is a lot of vested knowledge. But as you mentioned, there's a lot new that is happening right now in the space as well. Let's go back to Tomasic. You have a very large platform and a large footprint, not just in Asia, but throughout the world. What is your strategy and your approach to addressing the climate urgency? We'll start with sort of climate and then maybe move to ESG into the S section. That sounds great. So Tomasic, our purpose is every generation prospers. And so we are inherently a long-term investor and we invest today with future generations in mind. And so when you think about something like climate, which is really the urgent issue of our time, right? And as a long-term investor, it poses both significant risk and the long-term resilience of a portfolio needs to take into account those risks, but also significant opportunity sets, right? In the context of what you can do on the investment side, as well as how you engage with your portfolio companies on the transition. And we'll come back to that. But that's why we set an ambitious goal to have a portfolio emissions on an absolute basis by 2030 from a 2010 baseline on the journey towards net zero by 2050. And it is an ambitious goal because on the one hand, our portfolio continues to grow. And on the other hand, we are a long-term holder of many incumbent companies, particularly in Singapore, that are in hard to bait sectors. So think about airlines, ports, some of the more conventional power generation where renewable energy resources in some of these jurisdictions are very difficult given some of the land constraints and so forth. And we want to make sure that we think about it much more holistically in terms of how we really lean in and think about that decarbonization. And so there is no silver bullet, but let me just talk about three key levers that we're harnessing. One is, of course, investing into climate-aligned opportunities, and we apply a 50 US dollar per ton carbon pricing across all of our new investments, which is de facto a way of internalizing that externality and bringing the discipline of putting that as an additional spread 
from which we have to think about our returns. And so we tend to invest in more carbon efficient businesses, as well as solutions and technologies that really can scale and address some of the pain points around the climate transition. So everything from clean energy, advanced sustainable mobility, sustainable materials, sustainable food and ag, the built environment, water waste, and so forth, and including in hard to base sectors, by the way, which I think is absolutely critical as a long-term investor. And we do this primarily through direct investments, but coming back to this theme about partnerships and collaboration, we always have a number of partnerships where we want to augment our capabilities and bring synergies and crowd in like-minded third-party capital so we can turbocharge our efforts. And so just a couple of examples around this. We have a joint venture with BlackRock called Decarbonization Partners that is setting up a series of funds very purposefully focused on late venture early growth to really scale proven technologies, but ones that have to come down the cost curve and really scale. So that's a good example of a partnership. We also are an investor in Brookfield Global Energy Transition Fund, which is at a much larger scale, thinking about the real economy and helping hard to bake sectors be able to transition through greater deployment of renewable energy and transitioning some of the great to green transformations that need to happen. Again, thinking about holistic of the real economy that we have to bring along. A second lever is really engaging and transitioning. So as mentioned, we do have a number of portfolio companies that have to transition in hard to bake sectors as well. And we do direct engagement. We also convene. So we have a sustainability council that we convene in Singapore to really learn from each other and be able to enhance best practices. And then we want to bring sort of systems change. So where we can, we will partner, pilot, and ideally scale bringing together market visibility, feedstock, as well as refining around the value chain, for example, for sustainable aviation fuel. So we have an example of this with Singapore Airlines, the Civil Aviation Authority of Singapore, Nesta and Exxon. And then we have a platform which I'll come back to, which is really focused on carbon credit monetization, high quality carbon credit monetization. And they can play a role in terms of monetizing the sustainable aviation fuel carbon benefits to bring down the green premium of SAF, given it is still economically more expensive than Jet A fuel, as an example, right? So really thinking about that systems and stitching mm -hmm. it together. And then the third lever is really about enabling carbon negative solutions. So we have a platform which we launched last year called Gen Zero. You're very familiar with the Gen Zero platform, Sue, since you've been helping with that. But that's really focused on, again, technology, nature-based solutions, and the enabling around the carbon market ecosystem to be able to generate measurable and quantifiable, and in many cases, monetizable high-quality carbon credits. And one of the partnership platforms that we have is Climate Impact X, which is a Singapore exchange, DBS, and with Standard Charter to get the marketplace and exchange going, greater liquidity, price discovery, et cetera, right? Because we need that priming of the broader ecosystem as well. And that's through which where we can monetize things like the sustainable aviation fuel carbon credits as well. So not a one size fits all. We've got to use all the tools at our disposal. You mentioned sort of setting the targets around net zero, which is driving a strategy. And obviously you need all the tools and we'll get back to the partnerships as well to get there. You also mentioned when we spoke earlier that in some of the individual sectors, like in food and ag, for example, that you have a 30 by 30. Can you explain some of the individual strategies, especially the heavy emitters, the ag, the transport, the energy, and how you set that goal? 
Yeah, so let me begin by saying that all of our investments are really leaning into four key structural trends that we think are cross-cutting and very durable, one of which is sustainable living. And that's what encompasses many of the different sectors that I talked about that needs to obviously transition and become more sustainable. And that actually is a cross-cutting theme that transcends both our markets as well as the various industry sector, what we call our clusters as well. We have dedicated teams, for example, in America is really driving that as well as in China and other regions. And we are leaning into, as I mentioned, some of the harder to base sectors. So, for example, investing into things like green cement, green steel, hydrogen, and how can we make that green, etc. And thinking about the broader ecosystem as well as the technologies as well. And just in terms of being able to do that, we do need partnerships. And so we partner certainly with our portfolio companies who can provide some of the market visibility. We think it's also very important to partner with ecosystem players who can stitch the infrastructure and enabling environment together. And hence why, as an example, I mentioned in the context of SAF, why it's important, obviously, to also work with the Civil Aviation Authority of Singapore, as well as the feedstock providers and refiners as well. And so really trying to think through and bring all of that together is incredibly important for us in the context of what we need to do. And is it, you mentioned the advisory board and sort of part of my question was, how are you, especially leading the charge in Asia, but also other jurisdictions and setting goals, which then drive a lot of the strategy? My question was, do you use to determine what is a realistic but aggressive goal? Who do you work with? Is it your advisory group? Is it BSR? How do you think about setting those goals? So it is a goal by 2030, right? And we obviously keep ourselves accountable year over year. But just to be very clear, given the fact that we are an owner of these investment companies and we're not going to divest just to get our portfolio goals achieved, there is going to be fluctuations along the way, depending on the growth trajectory of a company or depends on the economic cycle. So air travel, for example, it was very low during COVID. It's obviously opening up again. We're not going to constrain the growth of companies nor economic development. We have to balance how do we do inclusive growth in a way that enables also balancing of the transition and the inflection. And that is actually very important, particularly when you think about economies like Asia, because unlike even the U.S. or even the Western Europe, Many economies are still going through the economic development trajectory. You still need to enable access and affordable access to even some of the most basic services, right? Whether it's water, waste solutions, as well as even clean energy. So we've got to really balance that equation. So just to be clear, it's not like we have a very specific set of goals that says every year we've got to do the following, and this is absolutely what we have to do. It is going to be a glide path. And the question really is mine around, how do we do that in the most sustainable way that does good for the environment, does good for lifting up the human potential and obviously social progress and ensures that we can generate sustainable value. And in the context of that, we do actually get informed, certainly by policy, certainly by advisors, certainly by portfolio companies, and certainly by technology innovation as well. And we do think increasingly there are more opportunities where the thesis of financial return, as well as doing good, doing well and doing good, go hand in hand, and also being able to bring the environmental as well as the social equation together. So for example, you talked about 30 by 30 in the context of food security. We are investing into a number of agri-platforms that bring greater access to services and solutions, many of them which are more efficient and sustainable to farmers. 
that improve their livelihoods as well. And this is land-based farmers as well as fisheries, for example. And that is obviously a very important staple food source for many of the economies as well. We also establish a partnership called Pentagreen with HSBC and also supported by Asia Development Bank and Clifford Capital, which I happen to serve on the board of. And it's a debt financing platform that is looking to bring marginal sustainable infrastructure projects, marginal bankable sustainable infrastructure projects, focused on clean energy, water waste in Southeast Asia, really priming the pump through technical advisory as well as blended finance, and looking to crowd in mainstream investors to really scale their sustainable infrastructure solutions that enable better access and cleaner access. And we need to do more of that, right? We happen to put out a report mid last year together with Bain and Microsoft around Southeast Asia's green economy. And we need some $3 trillion of capital to be mobilized for Southeast Asian economy to hit its carbon goals by 2030. And we only have a fraction of it coming in. So we need to do more of these partnerships and financing and investment instruments. At what you describe as the radical partnerships. Before we go there, I do just want to pause for a second and amplify something that you said and maybe really drill down. We started initially focused on climate, focusing on the environmental, which is folks like you and I said so that that is where we started. It used to be that investors either invested in people or planet. You had sort of duality. You guys are really focused on evaluating, I think, all of your investments in terms of both, that you have to think about access and a just transition. Do you want to provide any more data or background? You provided some in terms of how you're thinking about combining the two and with your investment strategy. Look, I do think it's not always easy, just to be very clear, right? right? There are sometimes quite a lot of tension between the two, right? The faster you transition, there will be obviously livelihoods and so on that will get impacted. But where we can, we try really hard to think through, where can we bring those things together and be able to have really the benefits around, again, financial, human, social, and nature, climate and nature as well, positive impacts, and be catalytic in that regard. Not from a concessionary perspective, but cataloging in terms of how we can really have the best tangible impact with our capital, given our purpose that I mentioned earlier. And so this is where I think the ESG integration really is important, because it's not a one-size-fits-all across our investments. Even though we have cross-cutting requirements, so all of our new investments, as I mentioned earlier, have to take into account climate, both physical transition risk and apply a carbon pricing, that's cross-cutting, no matter what sector, what market you're in. But then, depending on the type of investment, the industry, the market, we do have to take a more bespoke and specific approach based on materiality lens as to what we need to really be able to diligence, what are the risk factors and opportunities that we really need to lean into, both as it relates to the investment thesis, but post-investment engagement. And in the context of that, we are on this journey of how do we minimize the negatives and mitigate them? And how do we elevate the positive as best we can through investments and engagement? And that is both environment and social. And when we think about some of the displacements that will inevitably happen as we accelerate the transition, how do we think about reskilling, upskilling, and the human potential it does become increasingly important for us. So that's an area, for example, but we are leaning in and doing some work around more broadly as well as in Singapore. Yeah, I think it's interesting. You guys have adopted the strategy that I think the smarter investors in this space has. You have to screen before you make an investment decision to determine how it fits within 
then your diligence and doing the deal, blending it in, and then active engagement with the portfolio companies. And I was interested, your strategy is similar to what in the EU opting in with, say, Article 9 under SFDR, that you need to make sure that the company is not causing any significant harm, which I just think is fabulous. So let's pivot a little bit. You are one player, Sovereign Wealth. You essentially have one LP. Talk to me a little bit about, before we get to the next question, will be on the radical partnerships. There are a lot of other players and it's not good or bad, but you have the financial institutions, you have the NGOs, you have the private equity and hedge funds, you have a variety of different players in the market. And Tomasic has an important role, but talk to me about how all of the players can contribute to some of these solutions, climate being a big one, but inequality being another. So just to clarify for the audience who may not know us nearly as well, we have a single shareholder and you mentioned LP, but we have a single shareholder, but we actually independently own and manage our own assets just for clarification. So with that comes obviously the ability to be able to allocate capital across many different growth stages of a company, as well as work directly in investing, but also work with partners as well to really augment what we are doing. In terms of the various actors that you mentioned, certainly I think the NGOs play a very important role, and I probably should have done more justice to some of the NGOs that I've partnered with and served on the boards of in terms of being able to learn from them and be informed. And I do think NGOs play an outsized role in terms of informing, supporting, convening, and oftentimes also nudging various actors to be able to accelerate the action, scale it, and also increasingly keep them more accountable, which I think is also an important role that NGOs play. In terms of financial institutions, many of them do partner with NGOs, as I mentioned earlier. But financial institutions, given the common, really underlying enabler is capital, right? We need lots of capital to be channeled into the right places. There are many different actors around the financial value chain. Some of them are large global financial institutions like the Goldman Sachs of the world, where they do a lot of different things. But one of the critical roles that they play is as an intermediary, bringing those who actually own the capital to those who need the capital, including entrepreneurs and startups that are scaling the next generation of green solutions, the incumbent companies that need to transition and even public sector, right? Um, Then you have asset managers, private equity firms, et cetera, that are also creating more vehicles through which you can actually bring in that capital to invest into places that also make financial returns. And you're seeing a number of different climate funds, a number of different impact funds, as well as different strategies enable you to also take public exposures and tilt away from certain things and tilt towards certain things. So it's important in the context of lots of different financial innovations and vehicles through which you can actually be able to bring sustainable capital to the right things and have that double bottom line. And that's certainly towards social inclusion as well in the context of some of the impact investments that are happening as well. And we are an asset owner. And so we have the opportunity to be able to deploy that capital and then engage with many of the asset managers and many of whom we partner with in the context of skating instruments and investable vehicles. So I talked about BlackRock being one of them, where we are working side by side with them on late venture early growth through decarbonization partners. But we have many others. We also work with the Breakthrough Energy and we're an investor in the Growth Fund as an example. We have a partnership with EQT, which is working with us on renewable energy infrastructure in India. 
because again, coming to sustainable infrastructure, access and affordable access in emerging markets, it's really important to lean in together to try to think about the environmental, but also the inclusion agenda. So we've been working with them through a platform called O2 Power in India on renewable energy. So those are some of the examples of how we're kind of partnering and how the various actors come together. Yeah, it's so diffuse through the nonprofit world, through the corporate world, and then through all of the financial world. It is, I think you guys are among the few that really does embrace this sort of radical partnership. It's like, okay, what are our goals? Who can we partner with to really make sure that we leverage Tomasic's both experience and financial capital to advance the ball? We did have one question before we move on to ESG and the markets more generally that came in. You mentioned setting the goals around climate and setting the price on emissions. How do you set your goals on the S side? Yeah, it's a really tricky question, Sue, because if you think climate is difficult, and I'm not by any means trying to oversimplify it, but arguably, many dimensions of E is actually well understood and cross-cutting, right? And certainly GHG emissions, whether it's coming out in US or whether it's coming out in Singapore, it's the same unit of carbon ton for the most part, even though I know there's some ambiguity around how do you do scope three emissions and so forth. But it's relatively well understood and increasingly measurable and transparent. When it comes to social, there are some cross-cutting threads, but what social means to different markets and different people can be very nuanced, right? Even something as simple as gender can be different in different jurisdictions. And certainly ethnic diversity can mean different things in different jurisdictions as well. And so it's really difficult to try to boil it down to a single set of things. And social can include everything from data privacy to product responsibility to supply chain issues, human rights issues, and so forth. So it is a lot of different things. The way we think about it is, and we are on a journey right now in terms of really thinking through and trying to become more systematic, but it is really about the material issues that we see in given investments and what is it that we can actually really diligently lean into and be able to, as earlier said, what can we do in terms of managing some of the risk and elevating some of the positives? However, we are designing a broader framework around translating that into some more systematic levers of how do we actually safeguard and uplift? What do we really want to lean into and really elevate in certain things like DEI, for example, diversity, equity, and inclusion? And so we are actually on the journey around that. And happy to share that when we're ready to do so. But it is a much more nuanced journey for, I think, all investors and companies. Not just Tomasic, it is, yes. And there's some interesting wrinkles coming out in the US in April and legislation and Supreme Court decisions and otherwise that I think may influence a lot of this. Talk to me a little bit. You mentioned earlier that you are an investor in funds. You are an LP because you're an asset owner. You're also a manager of funds. You're a partner in other funds. You then are investing in venture and growth, and you also have a credit strategy. I know you are integrating ESG through all of those strategies, but that is difficult. Are there any specific hurdles in strategies that you have to overcome? I would think credit is a little more more nascent. Are you having success with the deal teams about, again, how you can integrate what you described, the screening, the diligence, and the management of the underlying companies through each of those strategies? Is it bespoke or is it really across all of your strategies? 
So we have been on a journey and we are continuing that journey where we have been deepening the ESG integration, but also expanding across all of the different asset classes. And most of it is direct equity, but as you said, we have credit strategy, we have fund strategy, we have liquidity, et cetera. But we have been integrating across all of them. So there are cross-cutting tools. As I said earlier, we have ESG due diligence template and requirements. We have climate is cross-cutting, and we have a number of materiality-informed toolkits, including obviously informed by SASB, as well as their own diligence and research. How we apply that, though, can look a little different, right? So, for example, given we have a very, very large number of diverse investments, even on the equity side of things, some of them are very large incumbent companies that we've owned for a very long period of time, but we do have more of an influence versus smaller stakes that are newer and also in early stage companies where they're at very early stages in their own kind of overall journey as a company. So how we apply that in practice looks different, depending on our influence, depending on the stage of the company and depending on the set of issues. And the journey that we're on is all of our investment teams understand the value proposition, why we need to do ESG integration. That's not questioned. But how they apply in practice as part of their court investment remit, I think it's fair to say it's different depending on the individual's experience and the type of investment that they do. But we really want to make this a core muscle for them, right? That's how we scale. Provide toolkits. If it's lighter touch things that we want to do, we apply toolkits versus our team that's more of the centralized, you know, center of expertise, if you want to call it that, that tends to really support the investment teams in going deeper where we have that influence, where it's more long-term strategic and where there may be risk issues or where the company may have great opportunities for uplift. Understood. And folks are starting to provide questions. You are welcome to provide questions. We've got about 15, 20 minutes left. So really good question we have is we talked a little bit earlier, back to the environmental and climate, about a price on carbon. There's sort of two parts of the question they had. Number one, are you going to be adjusting that over time? And number two, are you pricing in other potential ecosystem services, water conservation and forest or health gains? Both of those, I thought, excellent question, if you don't mind trying to address. Yeah, no, it's a great question. So the first part of the question on carbon pricing, and are we adjusting that? The short answer is yes. And we recently adjusted it from 42 US dollars to 50, and we will be adjusting it over time to 100 US dollars by 2030. And that is very much informed by science, right? What are the pricing that we need to be able to internalize that science says that we need to do to be on that one and a half degree journey? And so we will be incrementally increasing that. In terms of the other ecosystem services, it's an excellent question. And we are very cognizant that even though we are doing a lot of things qualitatively in terms of thinking about, again, impact on biodiversity, nature, water, waste, et cetera, we aren't doing it as systematically today. So it is indeed a journey, but we are giving it some thought as to what does it really look like for us as we think about the next phases of making things more systematic for us. And so I know there's a lot of work being done by TFND, obviously the Biodiversity Convention. And so I do think more broadly, ecosystem services and biodiversity is an area that investors and companies really need to lean into. And ideally, if we can invest into areas that has a trifecta of bending the climate, the carbon trajectory, it has biodiversity benefits and livelihood benefits, that's a trifecta. And hence why we think nature-based solutions actually have an outsized role to play as we think about some of those co-benefits that we can have. 
Understood. That's great. Again, welcome to take your questions. Just put them in the Q&A. But let's zoom out a little bit to what's going on with ESG more generally. And particularly, we have not had in this program somebody who is focused, at least part of their focus is in Asia. Can you talk a little bit about how you see the ESG market, both opportunities and regulatory varying across regions? And then maybe a little more detail on kind of what's happening in Asia? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's fair to say Asia is still early in its ESG journey, right? I'm sure you've seen many of the statistics out there just to give you a comparison. If you look at the global ESG flows last year, and despite the volatility and headwinds, it actually was very resilient. But the vast majority of that, north of 80%, went into the EU market. US was probably around 10 11%. And Asia saw low single-digit share of that. And the overall penetration of ESG funds as a percentage of assets is also very low. Asia, I think we also have to keep in mind, is not a single country nor a single block. There are many different countries that are at various different stages on their own ESG journey. And of course, it's important to keep in mind that even the underlying financial markets are at different evolutions. So if you think about ESG market, that sits on top of that market. So we have to keep that in mind. Having said, if you look at the overall picture, there is huge momentum. It is becoming much more mainstream for the reasons that, Suze, you started to talk about, which is there is policy tailwinds, green growth, for example, Singapore has a green growth plan. You know, many of the large emitting countries have come out now with net zero goals, whether it be 2050, 2060 or 2070. And I suspect we'll continue to accelerate some of that, by the way, as you get more technology visibility. In addition, there's regulatory push. Much like EU and to some degree in the US, there is significant momentum around mandatory reporting, given that information and disclosure is absolutely critical. And so ESG reporting, climate TCFD aligned reporting, there's also variations of taxonomy, green taxonomy. And we've had the opportunity to work, for example, as part of the green finance industry task force that the Monetary Authority of Singapore has convened. And recently, then the last consultation of a taxonomy for Singapore that has both green activities, but importantly, transition activities with a finite time frame. And I think that is actually a really important thing to emphasize in the context of Asian emerging economies. We can't just think about the green solutions that we have to scale. We do have to transition, right, and do it in an inclusive way, which I think is arguably a little bit more nuanced for emerging economies than developed economies, right? Because again, these economies are growing, populations are growing, there's a younger generation of people. And so how do we do this in an inclusive way is absolutely critical for Asia. And then there's market pull. And we have the privilege of having sort of a front row seat, both in terms of how we ourselves are increasing ambition and how we're allocating capital and engaging and walking the walk ourselves as an institution. But we can see this with our portfolio companies and with the asset management platforms. But even in the last couple of years since I've been at Tomasek, it's quite remarkable how fast they've moved on ESG integration, both because it's about managing mm -hmm. risk, but it's also importantly about capturing the opportunities. So there's a lot going on and it has become mainstream. And we are seeing also opportunities to really invest into innovative technologies and business platforms as well. So it's an exciting time in Asia. 
It is. It's an exciting time. Well, globally, it's, I should say. Globally, Asia. that's what I was going to say. Interesting yeah. things in the US and in Europe. I would love to hear your perspective because my perspective is in the US, we're either stagnant or in some cases moving backwards. The EU, we were all in the same place five, 10 years ago. Now the EU has gone way, way ahead with whether it's SFDR or other. So I'd love to hear your perspective on how Asia, I mean, taking a step back, for those of you new to this area, if you take ESG, there's part of it that is regulatorily driven, maybe 30%, but that's growing. And then there's part of it that, as you mentioned, when investors really focus on it, it's key to operations and value. And then there's everything else that varies by industry. But I'd love your perspective on what's happening in the US and the EU as well. Well, look, I know ESG can oftentimes mean different things to different people. So I think it's helpful just to level set to begin with that ESG at the core of it is about good business. It's about good investment returns, right? In a world where on top of the big environment and societal challenges, if you think about the world that we headed into that I know many of us feel visibly today already, capital is not going to be as abundantly available. Inflation interest rates are going up. With the geopolitics and the increasing decoupling that's happening, that actually has secondary tertiary implications on supply chains, energy, food security. We've seen this obviously very visibly play out during the course of the past year with unfortunate circumstances in Europe. And then that is all exacerbated by the climate crisis, right? So when you think about all of these forces at work, it is super important to think through, particularly if you're a long-term oriented investor and also a company management team, to think about how do you really future-proof your business and the investment to make it long-term resilient and also to be able to lean in and think about where can I address the pain points? It enables you to grow faster, innovate, and be able to capture a much larger addressable market. And the good news is, when you think about even the US, despite some of the headlines that are going on, we have actually done the biggest climate bill, the IRA, and effective industrial policy. And that is starting to unlock significant amounts of capital. I mean, some of the numbers that you've seen is around slightly south of 400 billion, but that's going to have magnitudes and more multiples of capital, given that it is essentially about tax credits and incentives. Europe has been moving far ahead, right? Even though I know they're talking about their version of an IRA, they've had the Repower EU, they've had a number of sustainable finance action plan. In fact, a 10-pronged plan, very comprehensive, which everything from the sustainable finance disclosure regulation, the taxonomy, most certainly the corporate sustainable disclosure requirements, all of those are working in concert to really channel sustainable capital flow. And even with some of the hiccups and challenges along the way, if anything, the challenges around energy security are actually accelerating the transition towards a cleaner, greener economy. It's not going backwards. I know there's been some uptick in coal and gas because of energy security, but if anything, it's actually accelerating the renewable energy and energy security independence. And so these drivers are fundamental structural drivers. There may be volatility along the way, but these Mm -hmm. are incredibly durable, growing momentum around these drivers and the market pull from consumers, companies, as well as from investors. And that's why sustainable living is one of the structural trends that we're investing into. Now, I think that's exactly right. I'm asked often, what about this whole anti-ESG push in the U.S.? And as we were talking earlier, there are 81 state-level initiatives and legislative initiatives. A, most of them are failing. But B, it doesn't change the fundamentals of a lot of ESG in terms of an investment priority. 
And in fact, some of what's happening, which is let's get granular, get out of greenwashing, make sure that we actually have the data to back up what we're saying and how we're saying it. We're ensuring that for you guys, through your investments, you're achieving your goals, I think can be viewed as a positive. And actually, Suze, you touched on one quick point that I think is worth just underscoring, by the way. That data, the transparency is actually really important, particularly from an investor speech, right? And I think the greater impetus to try to actually make clearer what are ESG investing strategies and what it isn't, and letting investors decide based on clear transparency, I think is a positive thing. The other thing is to actually provide greater standardization and comparability and reliability of ESG data and the push to do so, you know, and there's obviously global efforts, the ISB, the International mm -hmm. Sustainable Standards Board, all of those we're very supportive of, right? Because with better discovery and transparency, you can make more informed decisions, right? Not only, again, I come back to the thesis of not only investing into the shiny green ones that everybody knows of, but also the discovery process of thinking about those that you may not think are necessarily the best companies, but how do you invest and help improve them and inflect them? And so I do think that data transparency and making informed decisions is actually going to be very important and valuable. No, it's the data and then it's the ability to benchmark because we're just getting to, as you mentioned, some of the environmental easier to manage. But if your number is on emissions is 47, you know, is that good or bad for your industry, for other companies? We're just at a point where there is a need for capital invested to be able to benchmark so that you are contributing to the positive on the environmental, but then also on the social side. So my last question for you, if we don't have any more from the audience, before I turn it back over to Aaron, is investors like Tomasic do play a key role. You've alluded to it. And I think you share my belief that this has become mainstream. And even if we have a lot of noise in the next couple of years, it's going to accelerate in terms of the commitment. But what do you see Starting in Asia and then more generally, what do you see as the next steps and in, in what happens with ESG integrated with investments? Yeah. So I'm going to come back to where we started, which is to underscore again, the climate issue is the urgent issue of our time, and it is cross-cutting both as it relates to risk and opportunity. So we all have to lean in. And I do see many more opportunities for us to partner and do radical partnership that really augments all the different skill sets bring systems change and really turbocharges the effort. And again, the BSRs and the NGOs of the world really play an outsized role in terms of helping to facilitate some of these things. But also importantly, opportunities around things like blended finance, right? And being able to stitch together public, philanthropic, catalytic capital alongside real mainstream capital, I think is also quite important. We touched upon greater available data transparency, right? And I do think you are going to see the market increasingly moving towards trying to find the companies that you need to be able to transition and not just the green companies that you have to scale. And I think it's fair to say, arguably to date, a lot of the investments has gone into, particularly ones that are calling themselves ESG funds, into the companies that are already green, right? But we need to do the hard work as information becomes more available and really be able to find the companies that we can help accelerate the transition 
and improve. And there's a lot of data sets that are emerging that says when you can actually improve the carbon intensity of a company or the operating efficiency by doing better waste management, water management, better talent management, that drops to the bottom line. And you become a greener company that potentially helps you become re-rated. So there's a valuation opportunity as well, valuation upset opportunity. And so being able to, we see investors, including ourselves, really starting to spend more time in those opportunity sets, right? Not just the green ones. And I think that's an important evolution in the market. And then importantly, we touched upon some of these things, but worth underscoring. We oftentimes take the linear approach to some of these issues, right? But we need to think about it much more systematically, thinking about, again, the trifecta of can we address climate? Can we bring kind of nature eco-based solutions? Can we think about the liveliness and inclusive growth and really thinking through how do we reskill and upskill those who will inevitably become more marginalized because you are going to have winners and losers in the process. And importantly, thinking about the emerging economies, right? They're the ones who are being more impacted, who really didn't contribute to the greenhouse gas emissions nearly as much as the developed economies. They are the more vulnerable, right? How do we make sure that they can continue their growth trajectory and bring them along and be able to create a bigger pie for everybody? We need to think about connecting those dots and thinking that through much more holistically, both as mm -hmm. investors, private sector. And importantly, we didn't talk so much about policymakers, but policymakers obviously have an outsized role to play in this regard as well. That's great. Thank you so much. I'm going to turn it back to Aaron to let him have the last word here. Great. Thank you. I found myself nodding in agreement many times over the course of the hour. So thank you, Kyung Ah. I thought it was really, you showed why you're one of the most thoughtful and committed people doing this work. I think your comment about how we are experiencing both structural change that's very profound while also volatile changes or acute changes that come up regularly. I think that is the reality for business right now. It's the reality for the world. And this work is central in making sure that we both navigate that, but also get out ahead of it. So I'm sure people will have taken away quite a lot of value from the discussion here today. So thank you very much. I will just close by saying thank you for joining us today and be on the lookout. We'll have an announcement coming soon about our next episode in March. And Kyung, I think you've raised the bar on us in terms of the quality of the discussion. So thank you very much. And I wish everyone a very good morning, afternoon, or evening. Thank you. Thank you. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot com slash podcasts.